blessing being here. It's a blessing celebrating our 37th, as Donna mentioned. Praise God for every moment of it. Praise Him for the years that He's given us and blessings that uh, we can't even uh, enumerate that, that go along with that. Tonight we'd like to look at Acts chapter 17. gospel keeps going out. We keep, we're seeing that theme in Acts, and uh, we've asked that question, Acts, what does that mean? Is it the Acts of the Apostles, or is it the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles? Both. Um, but we see one thing happening is the power of the gospel and, and the boldness of those who present the gospel. We see the boldness of Paul. Um, we see him in Thessal, excuse me, we see him in, um, in Philippi in chapter 6 and being beaten and put in jail, but the gospel still goes out. Then at the beginning of, of uh, 17, he goes to Thessalonica and uh, he has some opposition to the gospel there. We see that in verse 5, the Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. I don't know if I explained that term, rabble. Um, we found that term, it's kind of like worthless fellows. It, it, it really comes from the Old Testament of mixed multitude. And uh, we saw it in, we preached in Numbers 11. We are talking about Thanksgiving and we are talking about the Israelites complaining, uh, complaining about the manna that they got. And it said the rabble of the group began to complain. They began to, to, to get together. Um, so it's kind of like the... Uh, the technical, uh, uh, the actual term means kind of a mixed multitude, but in this case, it, it's talking about a bad mix um, that that began to to, to to do some things. It's interesting that uh, I know my parents always try to teach me this as a child: don't get in with the wrong group. Uh, people do things that they normally wouldn't do in groups that they wouldn't normally do by themselves because they they have a boldness and a strength. Um, that can actually work for good in, in gospel ministry as well, that we'll be encouraged to do some things that we may be timid to do on our own. But this rabble rebelled against the word of God, and they attacked um, Paul's team, or they tried to attack Paul's team, but he, he left their midst. And uh, <clears throat> look at verse 10, we get into the section for today. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So we, we need to remember they're, they're leaving Thessalonica and going to Berea, but they're not leaving because they're running away from conflict um, because we see Paul faced with many, with much conflict all during the time. So he's not doing this as an escape. He's doing this as a means for making the gospel profitable. Um, he has preached the gospel there. He has uh, allowed the Holy Spirit to to work that gospel there and he has some fruit from there and then some people cause trouble now what he's doing is he's not packing up and going home he's packing up and moving to the next location so he can preach the gospel there as well and that's what happens when he gets to Berea he does what he normally do does um, look at verse um, verse 11 the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea and when they arrived they went into the Jewish synagogue. That was their normal practice. Go to the synagogue, the place 
where Jews met. Now, they were going to the synagogue because the synagogue was supposed to be a place of worship, and it was supposed to be a place where the Word of God was honored. The Old Testament was taught. That's what they had then as the Word of God. They didn't have the New Testament then. But we know that the, new, the Old Testament is incomplete without the New. And those who study only the Old Testament need to connect that Old Testament with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a bunch of laws and do's and don'ts. It points to Jesus Christ. Jesus said that himself in Luke 24. And that's exactly what Paul was doing. Remember verse 3, what he says? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. So what Paul did is, is he linked the Old Testament with the new, and he linked the Old Testament with the person of Jesus, Jesus Christ. And so um, that's what he did as a regular practice. Look at verse 11, their response. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they, re they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. When it says examining the scriptures, what were they doing? They were really listening to what Paul was saying. And saying, is there a connection with the Old Testament and this person of Jesus? Does Jesus, in fact, fulfill all the scriptures? You know, we are reading Sunday uh, in Matthew. And several times you see in the story of, of, of the birth of Christ, as it was written, as it was written, as it was written. In other words, it said, this turned out just like the Old Testament said it would. And that's what Paul is referring to. This Old Testament is fulfilled completely in the person of Jesus Christ. They wrote about him, and he, he fulfills every bit of that. And so what they were doing was they, they were thinking, they were checking the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. They were finding him to be true and finding him to be right. And as a result of that, verse 12, many of them therefore believed. <coughs> so we see a positive response to the gospel, but what should we expect as well? You expect some, some negative responses. You expect some hardship. And sure enough, we get those in verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, it came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Satan is persistent, isn't he? He's not going to leave you and me alone. That's why we're here for prayer service tonight. <laughs> it's like, Lord... Get Satan off my back. <laughs> I'm having trouble with this. I'm, I'm, I'm being harassed in this way. Th that's what we are going through in this world. We come in Wednesday sometimes looking tired, droopy, and I know why. <laughs> it's not easy going through life. We need that encouragement. We need that prayer. Uh, we need that, that brotherly uh, love that encourages us to continue on um, in the faith. And so um, Paul and his team got this harassment. It followed them. Jews came up from Thessalonica. They weren't content to, to shut them down there or try to shut them down there. But they came up to Berea where people were receiving the word, and they tried to agitate, it says, and stirring up the crowds. So what happened? So the brothers, verse 14, immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. Silas and Timothy remained there. Again, this is another point that, that shows that 
um, Paul and Silas weren't just running from trouble. Um, they had an agenda. Get the gospel started. Timothy um, says there, Timothy and uh, Silas stayed there, and they were, they were continuing on the work there um, so that they could see some fruit from that. <coughs> now we get into... Uh, what happens in Athens. And I want to get started with this, even though we won't be able to finish it today. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. A couple things I want to mention here. You see his normal approach he goes into the synagogue. He goes where the Jews are, goes where the word of God can and should be received, and he speaks to them and he explains who Christ is. They, they hadn't accepted Christ, but he explains that to them. He reasons with them through the scripture. But he also goes to the marketplace. He goes where other people are to speak the, um, the word of God to them. Also notice notice how he responded to the sin of those people. It, it, it's like this. It seems like each culture, and we know like within a city like Milwaukee, there's several cultures, but there's a, there's kind of like a culture of Milwaukee. It's like there's a culture of Wisconsin. And each culture kind of expresses its way, expresses it way, I its own way in a particular manner and in, in a sinful manner. Um, and that bothered Paul. Look, look at how they express. It says, um, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Um, Paul saw that it was what I would call a cultured idolatry. Now, why do I say that? We normally think of idolatry as being pagan, Right? We think, uh, at least I think, I think of these African tribes hooping and hollering and banging on drums and running in circles and jumping up and down. And then all of a sudden some, some image, you know, either comes up out of the ground or falls from the sky. And, and there, they're, you know, there's some crazy image, the bones of a skeleton that they put together. And that's their idol. That's their God. We think of some, just some pagan uh, ritualistic worship. But I call it here cultured idolatry because these people looked at themselves as educated, very rich in culture, philosophical. Um, uh, um, you, you see that as you read through here. And so the flavor of their sin was a particular flavor. Um, we can see that in Milwaukee. Um, when you live in Milwaukee, you see people... They, they have a, uh, you know, we call it a beer city. We, we, we get drunk and think nothing of it. Co uh, when I went to college, it reminded me there's a culture in college that, that led itself to particular ways and particular sin that people uh, get easily off into. And in doing that, they justify themselves and, and um, um, even sometimes um, praise themselves for, for doing things a certain way. Paul saw the wickedness of the cultured idolatry that was a part of that culture. 
And not only did he condemn it, but he confronted it in a biblical way, in a way that would address it and point people to Christ and bring, bring to them conviction. That's what I want to look at in, in the next few weeks to come. But notice that it says his spirit was aroused. His spirit um, was provoked, it says, within him. I think we ought to be provoked. In fact, I think we ought to pray for that. Lord, help me not just get complacent with the culture of sin around me. Just because people do this all the time, help me not to just adjust to it and think nothing of it. Help me not be complacent with it, but help me to recognize it for what it is. And then, we'll see as Paul did, address it in a proper way. We're not talking about a holier-than-thou attitude. We're talking about seeing it for, for what it is and addressing it at its root level and, and applying the gospel to it. That's uh, in the next couple of weeks we get a chance. Let's see how Paul addresses their culture, their particular ways with the gospel. Good evening, saints. <coughs> Last week we went over Hebrews 6. I know a number of you were thinking about this passage. We were saying that there was little bit of difficulty in this past. Do you remember it? So what I want to do is a little, something a little bit different <coughs> in our meditation time. And I want to just turn it over to you and you give me what you think is the key to understanding this passage and how you understand it. So um, for the sake of better understanding I'm going to read the passage again, and then we'll go through. I'm going to start, though, back in 5.11, and then I'm going to read all the way through 6.12. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again on the foundation of repentance from dead works or of faith towards God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and are holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work 
and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Some difficulties in this. How do you understand this passage or the difficulties in the passage? Me and Grandma was talking about it. You want to go first, Grandma? Spirit has already affirmed in you first, right? <clears throat> what are some basic things that you could think if you didn't have the Holy Spirit assuring you? You could think this passage is talking about you can lose your salvation and you can't get it back, right? You could be thinking all those things. You could be thinking um, you could be lost when it talks about the ground being cursed and what does that mean, right? You could be lost on all those things. But there's a few... Let me just give you some guidance of how I came to it and I was talking with Dad about it and we feel confident in saying this to you, is this. This passage, off this, we have much to say. So that's the start of a new section, right? Verse 1 of chapter 6, therefore. And verse 9 of chapter 6, though. In other words, this is all contained in one thought. There's one general thought in this passage all the way from 511 all the way through 612. You can sell to verse 13, he's talking about something new, right? So to understand this passage, first thing we need to figure out is where does it start, where does it begin? Second thing we need to look at is how does it start, how does it end? That's another good starting place. How does it start? Well, he starts and he's challenging the people, just like uh, Mickey said, just like um, Aaron said. He's challenging them, he said, this, I got a lot to explain, but it's hard because you haven't been growing the way you should. You still need milk. Right? Isn't that what it's just of the saying in, in the end of chapter 5? You still need milk. And you know what? That's not good. Solid food is for the mature, for people who have practiced the things that they've been taught. And you've not been doing them. And in the first part of chapter 6, therefore let us leave the elementary principles. In other words, come on guys, let's get out of first grade. We have to move beyond that. And at the end, verse 9, though we speak of these in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. His whole point is saying, I'm not talking to unbelievers, hopefully. Right? I'm talking to Christians that need to be challenged. And what's the point? Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. The whole point of this passage is how do you maintain being a Christian from beginning to end? Right? Now we could get lost if we didn't think about that. This is what this passage is about. It's about being saved from beginning to end. And we looked at the beginning, we looked at the end, and we confirmed that. Now, we can look at the hard parts. Look at those hard verses. And we know where those are, right? Verse 4, that's hard. For it is impossible in the case of these, right? When he lists something that's impossible, whoa, right? Verse 5 is hard. Verse 6 is hard. Then we get to verse 7, and it seems weird, doesn't it? But that explains what the first few verses mean, the hard verses. It says this in verse 7. 
For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. What is he saying? Well, he said, first, let me give you an illustration. After I say something that may seem odd to you, let me give an illustration to make it simple. And that is this. The ground that produces fruit is blessed. And the ground that doesn't produce fruit is cursed. And remember, his whole thing about this is your growth. At the beginning, he was talking about growing. And at the end, he's talking about holding fast to the end. And here in the middle now, he's talking about growth. Now, the thing about this is, it's such a sweet passage. Because when it talks about the earth, who makes the earth? What makes good ground good ground? God? God? What makes bad ground bad ground? God? It's God in control. This is a sovereignty passage. This is not a free will passage. The ground cannot move and make itself good or bad. It simply is what it is. Even good ground can't produce good fruit unless it has sun, rain, and seed. And neither of those does the ground produce for itself. And what he's simply saying is this. If you think of all the good teaching of God as the sun, the rain, and the seed, if the ground is good, it cannot help but produce something fruitful. And if the ground is bad, it cannot help but produce thorns. And he says the end of it is to be burned. No way that you can be sitting in God's teaching, sitting in God's truth, and produce thorns and that be okay. Something's wrong. So let's go back to verse 4. What are you saying? It is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, it's impossible. If you've been enlightened, if you tasted the heavenly gift, if you shared in the Holy Spirit, if you tasted the goodness of God, and you got powers from the age to come. In other words, you got the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible for you to get to that state and then fall away. It's impossible. It is impossible. What Grandma Holt was saying. He's putting a challenge to them. Because somebody probably came up to say, yeah, you know, I'm kind of falling away a little bit. Hold up. How's that possible? Does good ground suddenly start producing thorns? How can you fall away? It's a hard statement. It's meant to be hard because it's meant to be almost like a punch in the gut. Right? It makes us check ourselves, doesn't it? Because we all slip up sometimes. And sometimes I say to myself, man, Lord, am I really saved? Boy, I be thinking these evil things sometimes, God. I be teaching. I don't want to be one of those people that come up to you and be like, Lord, Lord. And you be like, I never knew you. You was faking. I don't want to be that person, God. That's a good place to be sometimes. Because we have to stop and say, my actions need to be produced with fruit. And he's saying all these possible for you to fall away. Because if you were to fall away, you would to say that God's work was ineffective and needed to be done twice. And there's nothing that God ever needed to do twice. Because if you need to do something twice, that means the first time you did it wasn't sufficient. And there's nothing that God does that isn't sufficient. The mystery is revealed away. Now, if you can do that for me in John 4, I would appreciate that. But 
I lost it. All right, so let me turn it over to Andy. But I, I believe that's good. It's in the Sunday school, we went through a thought experiment like that too. It helps us to think. Good evening, everybody. So what we'll pray about today, first aspect is, um, I want one person to pray about um, just a prayer, a prayer of praise um, for Pastor and Donna and their anniversary. Um, it's a it's a big deal. I mean, it's always a big deal when someone has an anniversary. But I think of it too when you look at our pastor and just the things that um, I guess to tie it in to give you a little bit more depth of where I'm coming from. We we were planning during the leadership meeting. We we're planning the um, anniversary service. And just to go over the things, the hardships that the church had went through. And um, Pastor and Donna went through that together. And so when you think about that, um, you know, as sometimes we see the pastor because he's in the front, we sometimes forget Donna's going through the same hardships. And um, sometimes someone wants to come give the encouraging word to pastor, and they forget about Donna. Um, and also, when you think about just their marriage as it's a biblical guideline. You know, when you look at qualifications of a pastor, you know, it lists his family structure. It lists, you know, a husband of one wife and how he, how he conducts himself in his family. So when you look, you look at it all together, that's a praise. That's a praise that God gave us a godly couple that we can look to to model our marriages off of as well. So we'll have one person pray for that. And then we'll have two people, one or two, pray for just the holiday season, um, just continuing to focus on Christ and what we're celebrating. Um, I know personally, there's some drama, there's always drama around holidays, and there's drama, and it wants to pull you away. It wants to pull your focus away from what we're really celebrating, because you get caught up in all this mess, and you're like trying to make things better, and you're like, well, how can we solve this problem? It's like, and it, and it really, and it's really, an, I, I look at it as an attack on Satan because I remember I was driving and I was dealing with some stuff with my family. And I'm like, this is trying to ruin my joy in Christmas, my joy in celebrating Christ's birth. Because it's, you know, it's trying to make it something that like, oh, we're dreading or it's causing me stress. And it's trying to pull away the joy that we should have celebrating the gift that we were given in Christ. So we'll have two people to just focus on um, that in their prayer, just that that stuff doesn't get in the way and that as we spend time with our families that we are able to point back to Christ as the reason is that's why we're celebrating this season. And then I'll close. Lord, we just lift up and we just praise you for um, giving us Pastor and Donna and as our pastor and pastor's wife. Lord, we just praise you for their first and then just um, keeping them and keeping their marriage strong. We just thank you so much for giving us the godly um, influence. We lift up this holiday season also, Lord, and we just think of Christmas, and we think of uh, the gift you've given us through um, having your son come here um, to minister to us, celebrating, and that um, we can just continue to celebrate and find joy in that gift that you've given us, knowing that thank you for that, Lord, and we just ask that you um, be with us all this holiday season as we travel and as we're with our families.